The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, coming to you from the beautiful Indian Summer Splash Studios of WWDB AM860 here in Greater Philadelphia. And we are streaming live on WWDBAM.com. You can reach us at Boomer Generation Radio at Gmail or on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And as a reminder that these shows are archived um, on the website, JewishSacredAging.com. We're going to be right back with our first segment guest, uh, Bob Cothran. And uh, we'll do so right after this message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approach to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome back here to our first segment here today on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio and hopefully through the magic of uh, electronics. Uh, Robert Cothran is on the line from uh, Ohio, I think. Bob, are you there? I am. Hey. Good morning, Richard. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. We're we're having beautiful Indian summer that we're basking in here as well. Well, yeah, I, it's good. I, it's it's very sad. I'm not a big fan of winter, and because um, <laughs> it serves absolutely no purpose as far as I'm concerned, and. Um, you know, this is like the, the weather people are saying, enjoy it. This is the last 48 hours of nice weather until perhaps May. So. True. Although I can't resist tossing in that there are a lot of things we'd rather do without about winter. But uh, once I worked for a couple of years uh, steadily in Puerto Rico, and the, after a couple of years, the one thing – that I missed more intensely than anything else was that the weather was never going to change. Yeah, that's why they invented San Diego. <laughs> right, which is, <laughs> I have a daughter who lives in San Diego. Yeah, it's not a bad place. But, uh, you know, especially in the middle of January and February here when it's like, you know, oh, it gets oh, yeah. dark at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and it's 20 degrees below zero. Who be. needs it? Anyway, Bob, thank you for yeah. calling in, and, and we sure. want to talk a little bit about uh, your experiences, and sp- specifically, um, one of the things that comes up a lot here on on the show, and that is uh, the transitions of people's lives as they move through the through the life cycle and full time work into not full time work, and transitioning, yeah. and how that affects individuals, and and you. You come from a career as a scenic designer and set designer in the theater, correct? That's right. So talk to me a little bit about what – what in, in, in Ohio where? In, in New York? No, where? actually, actually uh, my wife and I moved here to Ohio when her health was beginning to decline and we knew we needed uh, soon more uh, – uh, care for her than I could provide on my own and looked for uh, a continuing care retirement center and 
came to Ohio where we had no connections and had never been before because we found Kindle, which was too good to be true. But uh, And so I've been here now seven years, but actually uh, we had lived prior to that for about 30 years in Knoxville, Tennessee, where yeah. I taught at uh, taught scene design, drawing, drafting, all of that, at, at the University of Tennessee home campus in Knoxville, and which was a, a, a terrific home base because it was just a 30-minute drive from, from uh, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which we loved, but it was also just two very short hops from anywhere on the East Coast where I had a project coming up. So you you worked professionally as a scene designer and a set designer as well as a teacher, correct? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. And and you can you can you share some of your projects? Uh, they, they wouldn't be uh, prominent uh, names. Uh, I worked almost exclusive, almost entirely in regional theater. Okay. In in uh, lower League of Resident Theater theaters, uh, mostly on the East Coast. Some. Uh, once in a while, I'd do something out west, but I was mostly up and down the East Coast. Did a lot in uh, uh, in, in Buffalo at Studio Arena, and up in the, worked in Syracuse and places like that, and um, at the Mechanic in Baltimore, oh, yeah. and and then down uh, did did a lot with various Eastern Shakespeare festivals, like like the Alabama Shakespeare Festival in Montgomery. And and also the Three Rivers uh, Festival in Pittsburgh, uh, and all of those were home bases for a, a long time, as as well as others. And the shows were uh, either classics, Shakespearean plays, Moliere, uh, all, that whole range, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, popular uh, contemporary um, n- new plays and pot boilers. What brought, what what drew you to do to do this? Was there something in your childhood that you know you went to a play and you said, "Wow, I like to do this"? Yeah. Uh, well, no, certain certainly not in any conscious way. Um, actually, I started to college uh, to major in physics. Wow, <laughs> and uh, loved it and still do. Uh, it started to Vanderbilt University to study physics in 1948, and um, uh, I I had grown up never going to the theater. That was just something my family was not into. I had no experience of the theater, and within the first few weeks at Vanderbilt, I saw a poster for a play that the campus extracurricular theater group was putting on. And I thought, that sounds interesting. I wonder what it would be like. And I, I went to see it. It was a production of uh, a very well-known mystery thriller, Pot Boiler, by Emmeline Williams, called Night Must Fall. Uh, and uh, it, it was an excellent production, I thought, And from my current point of view at that time. Uh, I, actually, I, I still think it probably was. And it totally blew me away. And I went back the next day. And uh, asked if they had, uh, if they were interested in volunteers with no background. And of course, you know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. And, and the outcome was, oddly enough, that from that day, it, in in the 
basic, perfectly true sense. I never left uh, to today. Um, uh, by, by the end of that first semester at Vanderbilt, I was doing so poorly in all of my subjects except one, uh, which was the problem. I, I would get focused on one thing and nothing else would get done. Uh, that's been a way of mine, I guess, all my life. But any, anyway, And it worked wonderfully in the theater, but it did not work as a uh, liberal arts undergraduate. And, and so by the end of that semester, I had dropped out of college and had gotten a job as a paid gopher with the little drama group there on the Vanderbilt campus and stayed there, which turned into a kind of apprenticeship. For, for four years until I might have graduated from Vanderbilt and then went on from one thing to another, got drafted, did all the stuff you have to do. But, but uh, from, from seeing that play, um, I, uh, in fact, all to get discovered out of the clear blue sky where I belonged, it seemed to me, although I, was not a, I couldn't have articulated that nearly so clearly then, it seems perfectly clear to me now. So th- this is uh, – it, it's always fascinating to see how people in many ways sort of like um, fate, you know. You walked yeah, in the one oh. and walked in, saw a fist, something got turned on, something got – and you, you focused. And as they say in uh, South Jersey, uh, the rest is history. So, Ex- exactly. And, and in fact, I, I – I uh, can't resist pursuing that just a moment. That, in fact, has has been in in a way that is surpassingly strange to me and increasingly so as my years add up. My entire life from that time, it seems to me, has been um, uh, almost altogether uh, – guided and directed in exactly that way. I I have lived an incredibly, unbelievably fortunate life that has consisted of falling over backwards into whatever the next wonderful opportunity is that I had no idea was going to happen or that I should even be interested in. That turned out to be, of all things, the perfect thing I should be doing, and uh, more fun than anything else I have ever done. So, the the do you do any of this now at, at Kendall in the community? Do, are are uh, you totally out of the scenic design theater role, or? Well, so, sort of. Actually, um, that that's a that's one of those questions that I'll finish talking about an hour from now, so you'll have to go. Well, you, all, you only have about 10, 15 minutes, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But, but uh, I, I used to, I was so absorbed in my life in theater and, and found it so enormously rewarding and challenging that uh, I, I assumed I would never retire. I couldn't imagine retiring, uh, but uh, when we were in our early 70s, my wife developed uh, Alzheimer's disease, 
uh, the beginnings of it, of advancing dementia. And it very gradually caught up with her as the years went by. Uh, and it became clear that we were going to have to go someplace where there would be more help than I could give her. We moved here to Kendall at Oberlin. Uh, and uh, at, through that period, it became clear that I was going to have to stop working in the theater. That would not be practical anymore. Uh, and, and in fact, I had always been uh, in spades what uh, people in the business call a hands-on designer. Mm-hmm. Not giving orders, but getting up to my elbows in, in the work. Uh, and it was just my my way of doing things. I, I was a union designer, and and I behaved myself. And the unions limit you somewhat to what you can get your hands into. But I had a lot of buddies who would look the other way, you know. And and so I was always very much physically into mounting things. Uh, and it was clear that I was going to have to stop that. And at that point in my life, I began to worry for the first time about what my life would be or if there would be any if I weren't doing theater anymore. But we came here, and uh, 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 my wife's decline led to her death about four years ago. Uh, And in the meantime, uh, I had found that there were, on every hand, opportunities and, in fact, invitations to do large-scale ornamental painting projects. And and I did several things. They were remodeling a dining room, and they had a uh, they put up a the contractors here at Kendall put up a big uh, about about thirty thirty six foot long by ten foot high um, uh, barrier wall to uh, cut off the construction work from the main lounge of of the central building here, and so. I said to him, why don't you let me paint an architectural fantasy on there since it's just a temporary thing? And they said, sure. So I did that, and that was very popular. And and then not long after that, I started in on a a large-scale mural uh, for the the outer part of the main dining room here at Kendall, and that turned into uh, about a four-year-long project, uh, painting project, uh, that I'll, I'll tell you about a little bit in a minute if we have time, but the point I'm getting to is uh, I have to go back a little. My involvement in theater as a set designer was primarily uh, successful, I I think, because of of my built-in fascination with um, I know what it is, but it's hard to describe it or name it with pure space and and the idea of working at design projects that dealt with shaping space in order that it accommodate a uh, an intense um, activity, an intense happening between a number of characters performing a, a, a play on stage. So the, uh, the transfer, to transfer that into what you're doing now in, in, in Kendall, yeah, your, that, your 
your experience of creating images, because I, I'm not being a, yep. a theater person, but when I go to the theater and no, you're quite right. You you see a set design, you're really creating either minimally or large scale um, an impression that backs up the the substance of the play. Yeah. So you've translated that from the theater, from your professional world in the theater now to taking a look at space at where you're living now at Kendall and creatively using that space. Is, is that, so in other words, the, what I'm trying to point out is that the concept of creativity, of being creative, uh, never really has left you. It just has been transferred into another either medium or format. Would I be correct in saying that? Entirely, uh, and and in in what for me was a really totally unexpected way, M- my absorption in theater was informing spaces that actors could occupy that would empower them and and become the real place where something was happening to them, and that seemed to be something I was losing when I couldn't work in theater anymore. But then I started doing these large scale mural projects and and what turned out was that it was an absolute here at the end of my life more or less uh it was an absolutely glorious vacation <laughs> to be working in pure pictorial space in which i could invent endlessly and never have to feel the responsibility that presently we've got to really build this so I have to ask you, I want to ask you a question that just came to me because you're talking about, you know, I'm picturing sets in my mind of all the, many of the shows that I've seen as, as in my life. Yeah. And the set, you know, really does, can overwhelm. I remember the first time I saw um, on stage, I think it was, it was Showboat and yeah. on Broadway and the curtain oh, yeah. opened and there was this magnificent set and sure. people, people actually just went, ooh. Uh, I think the New York Times wrote in its review of the show that the first opening set of the of the of the show was so overwhelming that people just applauded the the set. But now I'm it reading happens. now I'm reading that set designers and you'll correct me if I'm wrong sure. that now they don't go to the extreme of building these they use computers and they project a computer image on a screen behind the actors. I would imagine to save money. Have you? Are you familiar with this, or am I just? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Really? Sure. sure. I, I didn't do any of it. I didn't work that way. But it, it's certainly an, an available vocabulary now that that adds to the literal three dimensional vocabulary, which is still there and is still being uh, used in theater speech, uh, so to speak. Um, the the thing about uh, the bottom line thing about theater, it, it of course is that the the center of it, of the core, is actual, real, living, breathing human beings getting up in front of a bunch of others uh, and uh, going through and performing an event, enacting mm. some something, and and that means that there is an ultimate limit on uh, the fundamental abstraction that can occur in theater performances because you you really don't have something that I qualify as theater. 
if you get close to getting rid of the human beings actually breathing on stage. What was and, the, in, in your career, Bob, had, bef- but before we start running out of time, we only have about yeah. five more minutes of this segment. Sure. What was the most exciting project you you you, you were involved with? Do you Let remember? Let me see. Uh, yeah, um, uh, the two come to mind uh, immediately. Uh, one one was a production of Hamlet that I did with uh, the Clarence Brown Theater Company and the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra wow. uh, uh, jointly. That was done on a huge stage and utilized a, a continuous score uh, for the orchestra of uh, music that a variety of composers, all the way from Liszt to Shostakovich, had written for the play Hamlet. Uh, and the the uh, orchestra uh, music director Kirk Trevor had had done a superb score that combined all of this material, and and we put the entire orchestra on stage with with ramps and platforms and spaces running through the instrument sections wow. where the actors were working, right cheek by jowl with the musicians, and that was a tremendously exciting. Uh, production. The other one that immediately comes to my mind was uh, a set of of two plays, uh, uh, new new plays uh, called the Bronte Cycle about about the Bronte sisters, well, and and their brother as well, the the Bronte family, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, by a playwright who was kind of fascinated, had been all his life with the Brontes, and uh, had written uh, a, a long, about six hour theater piece that uh, was essent- was really more like a shooting script for a film than anything else. Uh, it, it consisted of shots rather than scenes or acts, uh, and there were hundreds of them. And, and that involved uh, preparing a kind of stage vocabulary that... Uh, was extremely flexible that could be adapted to what was happening today because during the whole rehearsal period, the writer was rewriting whole scenes and adding new ones and taking out others daily. Mm-hmm. And and it, it was out of the question to start out and do serious plans and build some big solid thing. And, and so instead we needed a vocabulary of forms and spaces and of and of lighting options on the stage so that whatever was going into the show today, we, we were ready to uh, work with just the way the actors were working with today's new lines. So let me ask you one last question before we conclude this segment. Sure. You, you've, you've been a, a, an advocate for, you, you've managed to take a lot of your creative aspect of your life and continue it even to this stage of your life through all kinds of things. What, if you, if, if you could summarize this in one piece of advice for people as baby boomers, as they're contemplating moving out of full-time work, transitioning into other things, um, what, what, what's the one piece of advice that you would give this generation? Boy. Um, and you have a minute and a half to do that. Yes. Right. Uh, I, the best thing I could uh, pass on to, to anyone as a, as a possibility to look for and 
grab hold of whenever you see a glimpse of it is uh, um, has has to do with th- this this may be a bad advice to some people but from from my point of view um, the the whole game it, it consists of living in the moment in the sense of of being uh, mindful of where you are and what's happening this minute and what's right around you and what the character of that experience is in the moment and and where it seems to be unfolding rather than planning 10 minutes beyond that into what you think would be uh, practical to do. Well, I mean, and thank you. I mean, that, that's, it's amazing that, 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 so thank you for, for giving that answer. I, it, it seems to be an answer that keeps coming up more and more and more. Um, really? Yeah, about understanding that, that you live in this moment and to celebrate the moment Absolutely. and not to worry about what's going to happen six months from now, uh, or what happened six years ago, because you really can't control either one of them. And, but you can't and, and control the, now. The other thing that I can't resist throwing in is is that you're, you're limited if you're working on plans for six months from now. You're limited to what you can think up, whereas what the moment can create for you and start that you never dreamed might work is limitless. So, uh, Bob Cochran from. Kendall in um, Oberlin, a great, great facility. I want to thank you very much for giving us your time and some of your insights and uh, keep being creative. Okay. You're, it's, it's it's great to talk to you. It's been a delight. Thank you very much. You take care. Have, have a good year and uh, take care of yourself in that uh, brutal Ohio winter. (laughs) Yeah, right. I'll do it. You be good. We'll be back with our second uh, segment guest, um, Helene Cohen, talking about – we're going to shift gears here a little bit from the theater, um, the legitimate theater, to a different type of theater, the theater of human caring. And we'll do that right after a little bit of a music from one of my favorite people from the good old days, uh, little Nina Simone, uh, which I hope you will enjoy. While the wine of wanderlust is still inside of me There's a few more handsome men that I'd like to know Just a few more handsome men is down the road I go Maybe when I've seen it all Seen all there is to see I'll find out I still cannot Run away from me Just as long as trains keep running Restless woman I'll be And there's a few Thank you. 
Join Richard Address and the Boomer Generation Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m. on WWDB 860 a.m. I want to really start jumping in on some ideas. Uh, there's so much being written, talked about, and published about the health of our generation, the baby boom generation. We'd like to talk to you a little bit about this very, very exciting program you're developing specifically for baby boomers. To many of our generation uh, now dealing with just the realities of our own mortality. 10 a.m. with Richard Address, the Boomer Generation. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888 888- Seven five nine zero one two eight. Good morning. Welcome back to our second segment of today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Again, you're coming to you're we're coming to you. If I could speak, it would be great. Uh, over WWDB AM eight sixty here in Greater Philadelphia, streaming live in the known universe at wwdbam.com. And we are delighted to welcome in studio uh, our guest for our second segment, Helene Cohen. From Crossroads Elder Advocacy Solutions and Services. For some reason, that was difficult to say, difficult to say this morning. Anyway, Helene, welcome, welcome Thank to you. the show. Thank you very much for being here. So let's get right to it. What it, what is Crossroads? Crossroads started as a result of I lived abroad for seven years, came back here. Um, was a paralegal for a number of years and was told I couldn't be marketed. Started working for the New Jersey Long-Term Care Ombudsman. And when my contract was up, my boss that was the ombudsman basically said, why don't you do this for a living? You're really good at it. So that's how this started. I love working with the elderly. And it's to help them remain independent with respect and dignity. And if they choose to live in their communities or their homes, I help them do that. So walk me through exactly what you do, okay? The the crossroads, um, you you market yourself as elder advocacy. Walk me through a phone call. You're sitting and and you're based in Bucks County? Correct. Okay, so a phone call comes. Give me a typical typical phone call. Typical phone call would be... Mom's at home. She just had a stroke. We need help as far as getting her services and solutions. We don't really want to put her in assisted living or nursing home. Can you help us find home care or CNA or sometimes it's visiting nurses? Um, can you help us get services in the home? Sometimes that includes making the, the home handicapped accessible. It might be getting the meals on wheels or getting meals in general brought into the home because a lot of families, everybody's working now, so people just can't take off from work, take care of mom and dad or mm-hmm. 
a loved one. So that's where I come in to try and help them get the services and the solutions that they need to help make their lives a little bit easier. So in essence, like an ombudsperson? Uh, sort of, yes. And what about do you do you help them navigate the the uh, insurance maze? I do. I do help them with well, state programs have um, counselors to do when it's time for them to pick their Medicare plan. But I also help lawyers' offices when a client is looking at potentially going to a nursing home, running out of money for Medicaid. So the lawyer will actually submit the application for Medicaid, but I'll help the client get all the documents together because there's a lot of stuff they need. They need five years' worth of um, paperwork, including marriage certificates, birth certificates, investments, properties, um, bank statements, any type of thing like that. That's where I help the families get things that they need. And if the banks or anyone happens to um, give them issues, that's where I get involved and advocate for them and get them the information that they need. No, that's I, this is I want to stress this because this is really having had to do this with my mom, mm-hmm. um, and the person in Jersey who really was a, an advocate, like who helped me navigate the Medicaid mm-hmm. qualification, which was if if she wasn't there doing what you do, right? I would probably <laughs> just going crazy because it, it was is. it's very hard, it's in the unbelievable, Medicaid, right? And I think a lot of times too is the Medicaid offices don't really explain. What's involved? And if you miss like one piece of paper, no. you get a letter back saying you're still missing things. And people, why is it? I have to ask the question because again, I, I walk this walk, and I know friends of mine. Why is it so bureaucratically difficult? Uh, well, I know in New Jersey, when I worked for the Ombudsman, one of the issues we had is that there were 31 um, offices and there were 31 flavors of what people did. So they were trying to change to make all Medicaid offices the same as far as paperwork that they needed. Different counties are the same because it, like here, Bucks County, Montgomery County, the income levels might be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So they're looking for different things and that's kind of how it's based. Um, but it needs to change. It needs to change because I think so many people are frustrated that they've worked their whole lives. They spent all their money on a nursing home and now they've got to go to the government to get help. And the other issue too is a lot of people don't want the government involved in their lives. And I think that's the other issue is you've got these people that are 89 years old and they don't want to give out their social security number and all their other information because what's the government going to do with it? Right, 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 right. So, to, to, to follow up on that hypothetical phone call, you alluded to this. Um, mom's just come home or dad's just come home. Uh, I'm working. My spouse is working. Um, we need to get somebody in for five to six hours a day to help cook, clean, and take care of dad or, or mom. Mm-hmm. You help find those people for individual families? I do. There's a number of companies out there. You've got franchises as well as some mom-and-pop organizations. I've worked with some, some good, some bad, um, to basically help the family get what they needed and to make sure that they're hiring the right people to take care of mom and dad, that those people are trained when they go in the home, that they know what they need to do, whether that's cooking, whether that's helping mom or dad um, get a bath, um, with grooming, any of the, helping them get in and out of a chair, in and out of the bed. So you want to find the right people that are going to work with your loved ones and take care of them as if it's their loved one. So I want to explore this because we've all heard horror stories. Correct. How do you, how can, walk me through, I'm sitting across from you, I've, I've just come to you with this dilemma, I have to find somebody to come in four or five hours a day. How do I make sure that the person 
or the company that I've hired is legitimate, if the people are qualified, and, and somebody isn't just getting ripped off? Well, usually what I do is I have a list of questions that I bring, um, whether I'm going to be there with the family interviewing these companies or they're going to be on their own. So the specific questions that they need to ask, and one of the biggest ones is education and training. How do you educate your people? How do you train them? A lot of the companies only do four to six hours training on top of maybe somebody going to a school for a CNA or an LPN. So that's what What, type of training. What's a CNA? See, a certified nursing assistant. Okay. And an LPN is a licensed practical Practical nurse. Practical nurse, right. Um, so making sure they now call them home health aides, which is an HHA. That's someone that will do the light housekeeping, the cooking, but they won't do personal care. Because personal care, you have to have certain training in. So By personal after, care, you're talking per, about like toileting? Dating, toileting, right, right, right. Um, grooming, those types of things. That's personal care. And so it's a, it, it becomes then the part of your job or role to research the various companies and their training and their professionalism and their background and their history? Correct. And a lot of, I don't know about Pennsylvania, well, most states have registries. So if a CNA might have had some infractions or had report bad reports, mm-hmm. you can go on their registry to see are they still licensed, um, if they've had any bad infractions. Um, infractions. A lot of time, some companies will do background checks. So they'll do someone will just do them for the county. Some will do for the state. Some will do the state and federally because Philadelphia, New Jersey, Delaware were so close in proximity that if someone had something going on in New Jersey, that's not going to stop them from getting a job in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania doesn't do due diligence looking to see what their background was. So that's that comes into play as well. Do you do any of that? I mean, as the part of your checks? yeah, you, as part um, of your service. If it's somebody that they're looking, if they're not looking to hire a specific company and they're just looking to hire an, an individual, individual, I will go on the registries for that family and say, check out this person. This is their license. Their license is up to date. Part of the problem now is is that a lot of people that are going to these schools to become certified nursing assistants are getting the training, but they're not going to get their licensing because it costs too much money to pay for the license. Really? So I think that has to change. So the, let me ask you quick. Uh, this also comes up a lot. You, I'm sure you've dealt with this. We're assuming that the, the, when the phone call comes, and I'm living in Newtown, uh, you know, and my mom or dad may be living in, you know, uh, next door or in the next town or at Abington. What happens if mom and dad are living in Boca? Do, how can you do? You help people long distance for long. I do. Di- you, how I do. Do, walk me through that? Because I, I actually had somebody out in the Midwest a while ago that called me that her aunt was in a hospital and they were looking for her to assume liability for everything. I'm like, well, you're not her power of attorney. You're not authorized to do that. So it's, a lot of times I'll connect them with people that I know. So through LinkedIn, through different organizations that I'm a part of, I'm able to refer them to people that are right in the area, um, saying this is what they're looking for. Can they help you out. Like I just had a referral from a woman out in California. There's a man in upstate um, in North Jersey that's looking to move to a different, different assisted living, and she wants me to help him because where he's at is too expensive. Mm-hmm. And he wants some place that are more Spanish-speaking residents because he's from Cuba. Okay. Oh, okay. And so you also then assist in families who have to make a placement of a loved one in an assisted living or skilled nursing? Correct. And I will go with them or also give them a set of questions that they need to ask when they go. I always tell people, go to some place more than once. When you first go to an assisted living, they're going to give you the sales pitch that I call the dog and pony show. I always tell them to go back more than once. Go in the morning. Go in the afternoon when there's an activity. Go when there's a meal. Go when there's an entertainment. 
go on the weekends when something's going on so that they can see fully what's going on in these different communities. And what about the cost factor? I mean, it, it, the the last statistic I saw in our area, in the greater Philadelphia right. area, um, nursing home was running something like high 80s, low $90,000 a year, mm-hmm. basic assisted assisted living, double occupancy, just the basic was in the $3,000 a month. Is this is this still operative, those figures? Yes, and I think it's getting higher. I think what you're going to see is you're going to see more and more people remain in their homes and their families get, and I think that's where you see all these home health agencies popping up because people are going to get home care in their home because they can't afford – to be in a nursing home or assisted living. I mean, I have one client, she's gone through close to $500,000 in four years being in an assisted living. She wow. started out at the assisted living, now she's in the memory care unit. And her money's almost gone. We're so speaking, I think that's part of it. We're speaking with Helene Cohen from Crossroads uh, Elder Advocacy. And real fast before we take this break from our friends at Kendall, Helene, um, contact information. Let's do this right away. You can do my um, email address is crossroadselderadvocacy at gmail.com. You can call me on my cell, 484-523-6767. Slowly. Okay. Do that again. 484-523-6767 or my website, www.crossroadselderadvocacy.org. And Crossroads Elder Advocacy is one continuous, no, not case sensitive. No. We'll be back with Helene. We're going to talk a little bit more about this, this, this growing phenomenon. And I want to just follow up on the aging in place because it seems to be, especially in our generation, um, the, something that we're really focused on. Uh, and we'll do that right after this message from our friends down the road at Kendall. Please join Richard Address and the Boomer Generation Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m. on WWDB 860 a.m. I want to really start jumping in on some ideas. Uh, there's so much being written, talked about, and published about the health of our generation, the baby boom generation. We'd like to talk to you a little bit about this very, very exciting program you're developing specifically for baby boomers to many of our generation uh, now dealing with just the realities of our own mortality. 10 a.m. with Richard Address, the Boomer Generation. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888 888- Seven five nine zero one two eight. Welcome back to our second segment here today on Boomer Generation Radio, coming to you from the studios of WWDBAM dot AM eight sixty in Philadelphia. I blew that one. The website uh, under streaming internet wise on WWDBAM dot com. Um, too many things on my mind. I'm talking about with Helene Cohen from um, Crossroads Elder Advocacy. This um, growing phenomenon, we were just talking again about the challenges economically of going into a nursing home or assisted living. And, Helene, you were saying that, that really your professional opinion is that you're going to see more and more boomers, and I think we're all starting to see this, f- fighting like crazy not to go into a facility and really relying more on um, family care, but the family care thing really puts such an unbelievable stress on the family itself. Um, 
because not most families aren't equipped or trained mm-hmm. to deal with this until an emergency happens and becomes really inevitable that you're, you're going to have to move into a facility. And I'm sure you deal with in a, quote, counseling, unquote, situation with families who are struggling as to when when do we have no choice but to place mom or dad in one of those facilities because we just can't do it anymore here. Right. And I think a lot of times, and it's that whole grappling thing, like you said, um, and I think a lot of times is when they think it's too dangerous for mom or dad to be home. Um, a lot of people think, and the one that my big pet peeve is when someone's diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia and someone's we need to lock mom or dad away. Well, you don't need to lock mom or dad away. It's not a prison. And there are a lot of things out there, a lot of new things that are coming out as far as Alzheimer's or dementia to be able to have mom and dad still stay at home. For think, example? Well, one of the biggest things right now is the adult day centers, which are popping up left and right. So that gives, if you need to go to work, they come similar to like they do for a daycare for a child. They come and pick mom and dad up on the, on the minivan. They take them to the adult day. They have a number of different activities, sometimes entertainment. They do get meals. And then 4 or 5 o'clock, they're coming home just like, you know, your kid would come from school and sometimes families need, might need to have somebody at the home when mom or dad first get home because maybe you don't get home till five or six o'clock right i think the other thing you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of multi-family coming back into place because you've got you know kids coming out of college that have student loan debt out the wazoo um you've got people my age i'm 56 that still have student loan debt um that have lo- lost their jobs that are hard it's harder for them to get a job so you're seeing families merge back into the way it was when my great-grandparents first came to this country, where you've got multiple families living in one home to be able to survive and to provide for each other. Yeah, and we're seeing, uh, because we've interviewed a bunch of people um, on the show and on my my Jewish Sacred Aging podcast, uh, we just put up another uh, instance of a colleague out in Los Angeles who's creating... Uh, uh, another type of a village organization. And we've had the people from the Village to Village program on the show here about a year ago explaining this whole concept of just creating a neighborhood village and volunteer services. And I pay a fee every year, and that entitles me to somebody to come in and change my light bulb or fix the washer or do all this stuff. But it allows me to stay in my home or in my the environment that I have and I'm used to, which psychologically is a lot more uh, profound and beneficial to a person's health, right? according to everything that I'm reading. Like um, I just had a family recently. It was two sons. The mother's lived in a home out in Germantown for over 50 years. She now has Alzheimer's. She's somewhat bed-bound. The one son wants to move her to Maryland. The other's like, son's like, like no, but what does mom want? And Because mom's always been, yeah, I want to stay in my home. So that's something that the sons are grappling with and basically comes down to what's in the best interest of mom. So there's two things I want to raise uh, before we start uh, running out of time. Number one, um, in your professional opinion, since you do this full time in elder advocacy uh, at Crossroads, what, how important is it for families to have the conversation to develop some sort of a care plan, a family-oriented care plan, just in case or when inevitably something happens? Oh, it's very important. I think people – I think one of the things – and you see this all over the place, all over the internet and, and different sites where they say to you, have the family talk. Um, during the holidays, start to notice things that mom or dad are doing. Now, there are a lot of people my age that 
mom or dad have a house in Florida. They also have a house up here, and they're not sure what mom and dad has. Right. Um, because they're clueless, because mom and dad didn't want them to know for whatever reason. So that's part of it. So really start to have those conversations with, well, mom or dad, what would you want if X, Y, or Z were to happen? Like I always say to my daughter, if I ever get Alzheimer's, put me on a cruise ship. I'm going on a cruise ship. I'm not going to a nursing home. Right. You know, cruise ship, you got doctors, you got people to take care of. That's what I'm doing. Um, so I think it's having that talk, and I think part of that is you have so many dysfunctional families right now because if you got, you know, people have gotten divorced, so you've got two, three, you know, four different marriages involved. So I think that plays a part in it too. So let me talk to you about that because uh, as a clergy person, <laughs> I, I've seen this, uh, and I'm a lot, and I'm sure in your work mm-hmm. you've seen it a lot. You know, it's not the myth of you know everybody getting along and kumbaya. Right. But there are some significant family dynamics involved. How is you? How do you, as the director of Crossroads Elder Advocacy, what role do you play in trying to negotiate family, as you call it, family dysfunction? Well, sometimes I actually I got trained to become an, a mediator for elder mediation, so that comes into play. Ah. The other thing is, it depends. Sometimes you have to see if this is being pushed by money because the family knows there's money involved, how the players of the game get involved. Sometimes it's, you know, if families are so far apart, you've got different kids living in different cities or, or states, and then mom or dad are someplace else, that's also hard. So where I get involved is I'll help the families get the services that mom or dad need and then keep them in the loop. Sometimes guardianship needs to be involved if the families are so dysfunctional and no one's taking care of mom or dad. This, uh, define that. Define that. Guardianship is usually when someone, they don't have, they call incapacity or capacity to make decisions on their own. So if you see mom or dad and they're giving five, ten thousand $10,000 away to the next-door neighbor just for the heck of it, something's going on somewhere. And sometimes it could be undue influence, it could be Alzheimer's and they think the neighbor is their daughter. So that comes into play. Or sometimes somebody just needs to become power of attorney because they're realizing that mom or dad can't make those decisions or can't just write a check out to every charity that right. they want to. So that comes into play too. Now, the power of eternity. I know that a lot of our generation um, have become power of attorneys for elderly parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, as part of Crossroads Services, do you walk somebody through that? Do you advise them? Do you work with lawyers uh, and do, family members? I do. I work with lawyers and family members um, as to – and what people seem to realize or don't realize is you don't have to one person to do everything. So you can have one person as your power of attorney as far as your financial decisions. You can have another person as your health care proxy right. make your medical decisions. And lawyers usually say to have two different people. That way they're not conflicted. The other thing this pushes is to have your advanced care plan in place so that your family does know what you want. God forbid if something happens to you. So you, you triggered something else. I mean, the idea of the, the powers of attorney, a lot of people, when we do workshops, uh, they'll say, well, I have a health care proxy, and it's going to be, it's for the sake of argument, my daughter. And then you'll ask the question, well, well suppose your daughter is unavailable. Where do they go then? Uh, do you recommend, as I know lawyers and, and other clergy people who work in this, that on that form, that let's say the health care proxy, mm-hmm. there's two or three people Yes. Uh, yeah, and, and an order of, so if, if this person is unavailable or doesn't want to make the decision at a particular right. period, you go to number two and number three. Right. There's a push in Bucks County right now that they're trying to get people to do their advanced care directive. So one of the things they say is to have the conversation with that person that you're going to pick to make your decisions. Are you okay with these decisions I'm making? If you're not, 
Mm-hmm. Right. That's always a lot of people. Right. You just can't name Joe without right. informing Joe. That right. Joe's going to be on the list. Right. Joe may be surprised. And also, talk to me about uh, people will have their uh, advanced directive or care plan. They'll fill out a form. Right. Okay. And then they'll stick it someplace. Where Where do you, in your experience, how far or wide of a net do you cast with people having a copy of this? Okay. Well, first of all, you should have all your health care providers, um, your doctors. If there's a hospital, that that's where you always go, the hospital. In fact, hospitals now ask if you have one. Right. Um, the person that's going to be your health care proxy, whether it's your daughter, your son, your neighbor, your uncle, they should have one. And then they always say to have one on your refrigerator in one of those magnetic things. So God forbid, if the EMTs have to come in, they know where that's at. So, and then... The bank usually – well, not a healthcare proxy, but a power attorney. The bank will want that. So give it to enough people. Make sure that whoever you've named as your healthcare proxy or as your alternative, they also have it so they're aware of what you want when you get to that situation. In other words, don't fill out the form and stick it in your safe deposit box. Correct. <laughs> Which we've probably run into, you know. And, yeah, oh, and I, but I think thirty, twenty, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that's what people used to do. Yeah, yeah. Now or it's, it's, it's much it's, different now. And, you know, and do you ever refer people to – I'm just looking at the phone. I know there are apps now that you can put right. all this on your phone. Right. And and um, whatever the app is, but I think it's on the iPhone, on the health app or something. Right. You can create something right. on like this. Talk to me a little bit because we, we just have a couple of um, two, three minutes left. The challenges that you're dealing with families in this growing, the growing phenomenon of dementia and Alzheimer's. What do you see? That's what's really difficult because I think people want – mom or dad or a loved one to be mom or dad or the loved one. So I think that's kind of what happens. So it's making them aware that mom or dad are still there. They're not, they're not the person they used to be, but they're still there. And I think that's the hardest thing. I grew up with it. My grandfather had it before it was called Alzheimer's. Right. It was called hardening of the arteries. He used to wander. Um, is And there's different forms. Some people act out. Some people don't. So it's Getting as much information you can. I do volunteer for the Alzheimer's Association. They have plenty of information. Yeah, a lot of resources. Potentially joining a support group or a caregiver or a caregiver support group is very helpful for families that are dealing with this. And there's so much information out there, um, but a lot of people can't deal with it, so they kind of just pull the you know covers over their head. Well, that leads, leads me to the last the last question. Do you run into a lot of denial? Yes, yeah. all the time. How do you deal with that? Somebody says it's it's going to be okay. It's not that bad. Do you, how, how do you break through that barrier? I kind of sometimes put my own personal stuff in because mm-hmm. I've been throughout with my family, so I can relate to them, and I think that's what helps a lot is because I can relate. I'm not some professional out there telling them what to do. I've had it in my life, so I know where I'm at. Um, because I, I do it for a living, I see that all the time. Real fast, we have about 30 seconds left. They want to contact you, Helene, at Crosswords Elder Advocacy. Phone number and website. Phone number is 484-523-6767. Website is www.crossroadselderadvocacy.org. Helene Cohen from Crossroads, Crossroads Elder Advocacy, thank you very much for being with us. Good luck. Continue the great work. Thank you. Uh, very, very important, very, very important and timely work to all of you. Thank you for joining us again on another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. We will see you next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern. In the meantime, have a great week, everyone. Stay safe. Talk to you next week.